I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. The challenges of triple negative breast cancer are fairly well known. The complexities, however, can make it hard to understand. That's why, as you'll hear, among other techniques, Dr. Jill Barganetti uses dance to explain molecular biology, genomics, and more. And as you'll also hear, Dr. Barganetti's research into triple negative breast cancer, various biomarkers, and more has put her at the forefront of discovering not only how these different variables might interact, but also how we might develop novel strategies to accurately identify and kill triple negative breast cancer cells. More about Dr. Barganetti. She's a professor at Hunter College, where she also is chair of the Molecular, Cellular, and Development PhD Program Department of Biological Sciences. She has carried out extensive research on the wild-type P53 protein, which assists in the suppression of tumor cells, and mutant P53, which is a tumor promoter. She is also a leader in the field of MDM2 research, studying how MDM2 promotes breast cancer proliferation and the survival of circulating tumor cells. Dr. Barganetti was awarded the prestigious Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers by President Bill Clinton in 1997 and has received numerous research grants. She was a member of the National Cancer Policy Board and served on the NIH Tumor Cell Biology Study Section. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jill Barganetti. Dr. Barganetti, thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So when I started to research you and your work for this conversation, I'm sure you already know my reaction. I was like, oh man, here we go again. Yet another world-class molecular biologist who also is a one-time dance major and current day choreographer. I mean, doesn't it seem these days that you just hear about that combination all the time? I enjoy what I do. Um, yeah, I get to do a few different things being a professor here at the City University of New York at Hunter College. You do. And I have seen it. I've watched and enjoyed some of the uh, video on YouTube. We'll get into your research, but obviously the choreographing biologist is something unique in my experience. What is choreographing genomics? So choreographing genomics is a course that I developed where I teach the biology of cancer through postmodern dance and this understanding of the fact that cancer is caused by mutations of particular genes and different genetic pathways and relate the genomics of cancer development to the basic biology of the genomics of every cell but how it can go wrong and how when it goes wrong, cells can proliferate out of control. And that is basically what I take the students through from the beginning of the semester till the end of the semester, starting with an understanding of the central dogma, which is that from DNA comes RNA and from RNA come proteins and how these different protein products are what, when mutated, often result in tumorigenesis. 
And so we do it through movement. It was fantastic to come across and really interesting to watch and felt like one of the reasons why we do these conversations. It's that communicating these ideas can be done in so many different ways. And to see it done through dance was really creative and really powerful. And I'm sure that your students get a great deal from that. Thank you. I'd like to add that I would love to take it further. And before COVID, we had started a process which we called Touched by Cancer, where we invited people who had been touched by cancer, either as people who had survived cancer, family members of people who had had cancer, to understand better what all of a cancer diagnosis means, what the understanding and the meaning of all these genes are. And we would have people who had been touched by cancer join us in the classroom for a few different meetings so we could get their perspectives on cancer and how it touched their lives, their perspective of their understanding, because they are often undergoing all these different tests getting to learn about their different sorts of treatment, their targeted treatments, and their understanding of what it means to them, but also perhaps their understanding of what might be going on that can bring a different perspective to the researcher and a student's decision to take on a particular life choice in a career. So it was very interesting to have them with us in the classroom. Another great example, how connecting happens through all different kinds of sources and avenues and hearing directly from people who've been touched by cancer would surely be a most powerful way, especially for students who I would assume are kind of just getting into the field. So I've now hit the absolute peak of my ability to talk in a quasi smart way about dance. And that wasn't even quasi smart how I've been talking, but I've reached my peak there. I'm way out of my field. So let's talk about your research. And this part of the conversation, obviously, like dance could, has the potential to get technical. So help me to keep it simple and help explain. Let's start at what I believe is the top. You're in the middle of extraordinary studies to offer novel therapies to attack triple negative breast cancer. And to do this, you are studying three critical biomarkers, MTP53, MDMX, and MDM2. And those three critical biomarkers, as I understand it, are known to drive triple negative breast cancer and other types of breast cancer. You're looking to determine their role in this adaptation. So far, so good is my characterization. Perfect. Terrific. Given that, help me level set. Why is triple negative breast cancer such a challenging cancer type? Secondly, what are biomarkers and why are you so interested in them? So let's start with first, why is triple negative breast cancer so hard to treat and what is it? Just listening to its name, it's been classified as something that it isn't, which is a very hard way to classify something. Oh, you're not this or you're not wrong. You're triple negative. So what is triple negative? Well, it means that the cell doesn't have particular types of what are called receptors. And those are things that have targetable therapies. And so by not having one of those three, it's missing treatments that could target those three things. Because it doesn't have those three targetable things, it's hard to target. So what can we identify that it does have rather than saying it's not this? Mm. What is it? Yes. And so when we talk about identifying biomarkers, okay, it's not those. 
So let's find some things that it is. And if we can identify those biomarkers for something that it is, then maybe we can target something at those. And so one of the biomarkers, which you talked about in the beginning, was you said MTP53, which stands for mutant P53. In triple negative breast cancer, about 80% of the time, they have mutant P53. And mutant P53 is a very stable protein in cancers. And in breast cancers that have mutant P53, they have lots of this protein that potentially we could target. In the past, people have felt that they couldn't target wild type, meaning normal P53. It's sort of been the nemesis of the biotechnology industry for a long time. They wanted mm. to target it. They haven't been able to target it. They decided to call it non-druggable and forgot about it. But I think that the mutant P53 is potentially targetable. Certainly knowing that cells have a lot of it gives you an avenue to go down because having a lot of it appears to change the DNA metabolism of the cancer cell. So that's one targetable now biomarker, mutant P53. And then MDM2 and MDMX are proteins that also interact with mutant P53. So they form a complex. If we use the dance idiom, you could think of it about three people holding hands together. So now you've got a circle as opposed to each one of them dancing off on their own, jumping into the sunset. They're somehow coming together and running in the field holding hands. And so that's what these three things can be together and then drive potentially differences in DNA metabolism for this cancer cell as these three biomarkers. Is part of the question how those three dance together? Is it a question of whether the three, in fact, are dancing together or whether any of them are acting alone? How does that connect? Okay, so it's good. We have the dance idiom to talk about these things, and we use a lot of the same language in dance that we do in science. So while they interact together, they also often grab other partners. So they might do some things together, and they might at times leave the group and be asked to go move to a corner and do something different in a corner with another partner, but then be told in the choreography to go back to the center. And that may change depending upon where they are in the piece, if they're at the beginning, the middle, or they're at the end. And cells in their process of going from one cell to two cells in this division they go through many different points in their choreography. And so those partners may move around, be together for a while, find other partners, and then they may bring those other partners into the fray. And if you didn't have those biomarkers, those other partners may not come in. And some of those other partners may be evil. We might give them an evil personality in which through that evil personality, they make the division happen more often. Sometimes they might be good, but somehow it's been like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Their personality really changes for the worse, and they start to bring in more evil partners to the mix. And which type of partner, and is it a partner, is the PARP1 protein? What are PARP inhibitors, and how do those biomarkers connect? So I have a lot of different biomarkers and a lot of different partners that I do look at. 
PARP is a protein that is very intimately involved in DNA metabolism. So this would be the lover for DNA, just loves it to pieces and helps it stay around. But in cancers, very often, that PARP is working in a way that keeps the DNA there and together when you would wish that the DNA would fall apart in a cancer cell. So that confused me because I was reading about that. So it repairs broken DNA. As a layperson, I read, oh, broken DNA, that's bad. I would want it to be repaired. Talk me through that right. part of it, please. So in a normal setting, as I talked about, you know, you've got this kind of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde setting. In a normal setting, you would want the DNA repaired. You want that lover there taking care of everything. But in a cell that has undergone a terrible mutation that's going to cause cancer, you want that cell to recognize, wow, there's been a problem. For example, when somebody gets a sunburn, there's been a problem. Let's slough those cells off. Let's let those cells die and bring better cells to the top. Let them die. We don't want them anymore. They've got all this damage because that's what happens with a sunburn, right? You get all this damaged DNA. Let's get rid of those cells. But what happens is the PARP in this setting is allowing those cells to stay alive. And so the PARP inhibitors, for example, have been used in the setting where people have a BRCA mutation, and they're very useful at blocking that PARP from now repairing the DNA, being the lover there in a scenario where the lover should really go away. Maybe there's it's a, a bad relationship. It's bad, yeah. bad. And so it inhibits it. And then when it inhibits it, the cells die. And that's a great thing because you didn't want those cells because they had this mutation. In the normal setting, yes, you do want it. But in the cancer setting, you don't. That makes sense. So if we have now covered or at least introduced the various partners and lovers and dancers and evildoers, and you've established some of the complexity of triple negative breast cancer and biomarkers and PARP inhibitors, tell me about your study. What are you looking at and what are you looking for? When scientists do their work, they come at it based on questions, and they have questions and hypotheses that they derive from small pieces of data that they get little by little. And so PARP came to us through a screen where we were not looking for it. We just were asking, what did mutant P53, this one partner in the dance, bring to the DNA? What was it doing when there was lots of it? And what we found was it was helping to bring this partner, this lover, PARP. And it was like, whoa, why is it bringing PARP? And the thing that we didn't know about PARP was that PARP inhibitors were being used for cancers that had BRCA mutations, but not being considered for cancers that had mutant P53, these mutations in P53. And in triple negative breast cancer, that's 80% of those cancers. So if that PARP inhibitor could be useful in a mutant P53 scenario, we would really bring a treatment paradigm to a large cohort of patients that currently don't have a targeted treatment. So could we address and ask the question if PARP inhibitor type therapeutic regimes 
would be useful in settings where you have a lot of mutant P53. And so a lot of our studies focus in on that question, can these PARP inhibitor therapeutics work to kill the cells that have mutant P53 while not really killing those cells that have the normal wild type P53? And so the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, really all of the funding they've given us got us focused on this question. And that question is being developed in a number of ways, not just considering the mutant P53, but now considering this other player, these other players in the dance, the MDM2 and the MDMX, and how they all might be interrelated in bringing these DNA metabolism type proteins to allow cancer cells to survive when we would be better off having them dead. So many permutations, it would seem, and possible paths given these different players. What does it mean to define a novel gain of function mutant P53 pathway? In reading about that, why is that so exciting? For us, it's exciting in the fact that so many cancers do have mutant P53. And as I said, in triple negative breast cancer, it's 80%. 80%, yeah. And wild type P53, it is a guardian of the genome. Wild type P53 helps repair and keep that DNA in play. And when the DNA is damaged, it causes the cells to die. But it was thought for a long time that mutant P53 just lost that function. So that now there wasn't this player to make the cells die, but it wasn't doing anything else. Mm. Then it began to be clear that some of the mutant P53 that's stable and at present in high level has the ability to do other things, but it was unclear what those other things were. Now the language gets a little bit more complicated. Many people have studied what that gain of function is at the level of making the DNA become RNA. That step from taking DNA to become an expressed gene in that RNA that becomes a protein. But not many people have examined the gain of function for what the mutant P53 does to the DNA metabolism itself what it does to those lovers of just DNA, not trying to make it into RNA, but just keeping the DNA successfully there in the cell, not to get sheared and fall apart, which would then allow the cancer cell to continue to exist, perhaps with an even more damaged genome, but a genome that can continue to be inherited in these cells that start to take over the body and become metastatic. And so for us, finding that new gained function that was involved in DNA metabolism, it was a very exciting thing because it really hadn't been evaluated before. Now it's been a number of years ago that our Breast Cancer Research Foundation funding allowed us to identify that pathway through an unbiased screen. You know, we weren't looking for PARP. It had been something people generally just used as a marker for cells dying. And here we were mm. deciding, oh, no, wait, we're not looking at it for cells dying. We're looking at it for cells living. We're now using this as a marker for cells that can continue to exist. In the past, it had been used for when the PARP would kind of get cleaved and cut up. It was used as a marker for cells dying. And so we're looking at a very different paradigm. We're looking at mutant P53 allowing cells to stay alive and PARP allowing cells to stay alive. It really comes across in reading about the research 
And I know I asked the question why it was so exciting, but in reading about it, it felt very exciting. It really came across that that was something different and something extraordinary. And as you said, looking at it with a different paradigm, what does your work mean in terms of various combinations of chemotherapy drugs? PARP therapeutics are used in patients who have BRCA1 mutations. They are clinically used, but they are not clinically used for patients who have mutant P53. It's not a diagnostic, oh, wow, you have mutant P53. Let's see what combination therapy we can use to kill your cancer. So within that, I think that it has a lot of potential applications. And certainly we see that it has efficacy in our cell culture dish. But unfortunately, we are not the ones who would be the people who would bring this to a clinical forefront. And how we get that information out there through the Breast Cancer Research Foundation is potentially a way that other people can then take these findings and use these findings in different ways. And it was in those meetings of bringing us all together that I got to meet Fumi Olapate. And now we are collaborating on this mutant P53 PARP axis trying to determine if we really see it more aggressively in women of African descent, because they tend to, or we, people of African descent, get triple negative breast cancer more often. And so looking to see, is this a way that we can really target this breast cancer, but, you know, would help everybody who gets triple negative breast cancer. But it brought us together and we have a collaborative grant now through the National Institutes of Health which would never have happened if it weren't for the Breast Cancer Research Foundation funding, starting the part work, getting me to meet Fumi Olupati, like all these amazing breast cancer researchers that I get to meet every year. It's just phenomenal. And cancer studies and cancer research is basically a lot of different people adding to different pieces of the puzzle. My little forefront of the world, my research, my lab is a small portion of what happens. And then there are other people who hopefully will find the research interesting and then investigate it in other ways and in other platforms. Understood. And maybe that's why my questioning went in that direction, because it feels like you're doing something that has the potential to affect those other areas. And yes, I'm sure plenty of researchers and scientists are looking for ways to take your work and perhaps start their own dance. What does it feel like to make these kinds of discoveries? I imagine you must feel a wide range. On the one hand, a scientist and the wonder of discovery, almost like an explorer is kind of how I was feeling in reading about some of the work. And at the same time, pride and hope for what might be possible for people who have triple negative breast cancer. What does it feel like to make these kinds of discoveries? I like that you put everything with a positive spin. Sometimes making the discoveries doesn't always have all that positive spin. Sometimes there's frustration in the discoveries. So, mm. you know, I absolutely believe in this idea of using mutant P53 and PARP and MDM2 and MDMX as biomarkers. But how does one get this translated to a clinical setting? 
and utilizing these type of biomarkers and the ideas of the treatment in a clinical setting. So sometimes it's frustrating because I make these discoveries. I'm thinking things in my head. Sometimes it's very complicated what I'm thinking and I have these next steps and these next questions. But when I think about people who are struggling with the disease and how one gets these ideas into a clinical manifestation of using these biomarkers and people understanding, you know, having P53 roll off their tongue the way BRCA rolls off people's tongue. I find it frustrating that mutant P53 is not something that's discussed in that same way. But meanwhile, you will say it to people who understand cancer and they're like, oh yeah, that's the most important cancer gene, Mm. but it's undruggable or it's untargetable or yeah, well, they all have mutant P53. So it's almost as if sometimes this pathway gets belittled because everybody's like, yeah, well, we know they have mutant P53 or lots of stuff has mutant P53, but it's so important. And so it gets frustrating that more people aren't trying to figure out a way to kill cancers that have mutant P53. So I I get a little frustrated sometimes. Making the discoveries is nice, but I've been working on the P53 pathway. And I started working on wild type P53 in 1990, which is frightening to say out loud. You know, it's a really long time that I've been working in this one gene pathway, although I wasn't looking at gain of function mutant P53 at that time. I have devoted my entire professional career outside of getting my PhD to this P53 gene. Yes, I can imagine. There surely must be frustration. And I'm sure on some level that at some point acts as fuel, I guess it must to keep one going, but it probably acts in both ways. But in the end, I'm sure it must act as the fuel because you're the engine that keeps on going. So where are you going to next? Where does this research go next? Well, we continue to examine the players in the dance and we keep finding new partners that come in and protect perhaps some partners that are more easily targetable. And so we have found some that appear to play in the game with the MDM2 and the MDMX that are on the surface of the cell. And it is thought that partners that are on the surface of the cell are much easier to find than if you have to go into the middle. It's much harder to go through this whole group of players. If they're right on the outside, they're much easier to grab. And so some of the studies are moving us to those players that are on the outside where there are drugs that can potentially target those players on the outside. And we're thinking about those a lot. And perhaps by targeting those players on the outside, it can easily facilitate the destruction of some of these metabolic processes that are allowing the DNA to continue to exist when we would wish it wouldn't. And Dr. Barganetti, you've been a BCRF investigator since 2005, and your BCRF grant is currently supported by Estee Lauder companies. How would you describe the role? You've talked about it a little bit, but how would you describe the role that BCRF and Estee Lauder have played in your research? Our research would not be where it is today if it weren't for the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and the Estee Lauder Fund. They have really allowed us to do the kind of studies that are unbiased 
to find this PARP pathway, which we never would have found if it weren't for the funding, and to ask the questions in a way that allows the portfolio to continue to increase in its breadth. So as I talked about, we're now thinking about things that are on the surface of the cell, trying to expand. So it gets a little frustrating thinking about this P53 engine that could, that's hard to target. And the Breast Cancer Research Foundation brings people together to think about all these various platforms at the same time. Every year we get together and we're talking about our research. So it continues to allow me to think new ways. And the Estee Lauder Fund has been there every step of the way, including Evelyn Lauder, who really was there with me from the beginning and supported, as she would call us, her researchers, her doctors, in <laughs> in our quest and in our creative questions and had faith that our questions would help to eradicate breast cancer. And let's hope that they do. Yes, let's hope that they do. And yes, I think we're all grateful that the Estee Lauders and the BCRFs and the Coonies won out over the Alvin Ailey's or whatever other company or companies surely would have wanted your talents there. I appreciated the dance metaphor. Listening to you, it comes across why you would use that as an avenue to communicate, not the only avenue. Your work speaks for itself and very loudly and very proudly. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for all of your very pointed questions. And thank you so much for allowing me to bring the dance idiom into my explanation of what I do. I really think that way. I think spatially and I think in movement perspectives because cells are moving all the time and everything inside the cell is moving. So it really helps to explain the way I think about biology. That was my conversation with Dr. Jill Barganetti. My thanks to Dr. Barganetti for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.